sending this one out. Welcome back to Shy One on our Radio. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, the knife at the gunfight. I have with me uh, a return guest, Anthony Fenton, a PhD candidate whose area of interest is the Persian Gulf region. And he's been on the show twice before to talk about uh, the fallout between Canadian and Saudi relations, as well as the war in Yemen and both the Saudi and United Arab Emirates role in that. And the military-industrial complex in the region. But Anthony, I wanted to have today to talk about a recent event that I've had a little bit difficult time really understanding, the recent drone attack on Saudi oil facility. Coordinated attack of 10 drones knocked out about half of the Saudi oil production capacity. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, initially it, it removed uh, almost 6 million barrels per day from uh, from the oil markets globally. Yeah, I mean, the, the, how everyone heard about it initially, uh, so it took took place first fall in sort of the pre-dawn hours of uh, almost 10 days ago of, from when we're recording this on September 14th. The, the Yemeni uh, militia that's been fighting a civil war essentially against the Saudi, uh, Saudi-backed, you know, puppet regime of Mansur Hadi since 2015, uh, they announced that they, they launched this attack on the Aramco facilities uh, that they said they used 10 drones. Um, very immediately, though, almost immediately, rather, the the U.S. came out and uh, a number of commentators uh, questioning the validity of uh, whether or not the Yemeni rebels would be capable of such an attack and immediately began sort of redirecting accusations towards uh, Iran, uh, saying that, no, it, in fact, uh, wasn't the Houthis who, who carried out this attack. It was... Uh, it was uh, Iranians, and as things have unfolded over the last ten days, you've seen other others pile on to this this assessment. Even though the uh, the evidence they produced is still pretty thin, uh, and the and the and the Houthis uh, provided a detailed you know uh, explanation of how they carried out the attack. Uh, Iranians, of course, have denied their involvement. Um, Many commentators I've spoken to uh, concede that possibly uh, Iran did have something to do uh, with the attacks. Um, and, of course, they've also added, uh, they've said that it wasn't just uh, drones, uh, they meaning Saudi Arabia themselves, uh, and the U.S. have said that it was cruise missiles as well as drones. And they're basically saying that the, the surgical nature of the attacks, as against, say, previous attacks that the Houthis have also made claim for recently on a, a Saudi Arabian airport, um, they've, they, they've attempted attacks on Saudi oil fields previously and been unsuccessful. Um, of course, they've, they've been some attacks, uh, alleged attacks uh, in the Strait of Hormuz, where oil uh, passes through on tankers. Um, but uh, so they said the surgical nature of these attacks and the, and the, and the precision with which they, they struck these particular sort of arteries of this, the, you know, the, the very at the very heart of Saudi. Oil production. Saudi Arabia, of course, is responsible for five percent or more of the uh, global oil production. Never in the history of uh, the regional conflict in the world, indeed, uh, has such a brazen and and damaging attack uh, taken place. And many people are referring to it as a, a game changer. You know, the fact that uh, be it uh, Yemeni forces themselves, or and or in conjunction with, or at the you know at the behest of uh, Iranian forces. The very fact that they could carry this uh, strike out to do it uh, in such a way that was undetected and undefended 
against uh, raises a new level of uh, stakes in the region uh, where where this type of conflict is concerned. And um, you know, and here we are uh, with the United Nations General Assembly underway, and so things are really heating up as the U.S. says they're going to present new evidence. Uh, we wait and see if we have a Colin Powell moment on our hands or or, or what have you. Wow, you just presented a lot that I'd like to get into, uh, but I think the first part is uh, about, you know, if it really was the Houthi rebel group that mounted this attack, it seems to me a game changer in asymmetrical warfare. The last time I can think of a similar rebel group launching an airborne attack was, uh, you know, the Tamil Tiger rebel, rebel group in Sri Lanka over 10 years ago. Do you think it's really possible that you know, the Houthi rebels on a six-figure budget could have launched an attack with such far-reaching impacts? I don't know if you have any insight on, on that. Not, not really, no. It's, it's, it's kind of a gray area at this point. I mean, all we know is what, you know, they, they've, they've taken responsibility. Um, you have the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Uh, the, the really dangerous thing, I think, from the Saudi perspective, uh, would be that if it was, if it was the Houthi rebels. I mean, the, the, the one of the interesting things about, the commentary and, of course, just the widespread coverage of this shook, shook global markets. It was actually referred to in one Canadian report as a rare bit of good news for the Canadian oil industry, right? So of course, you had a spike in uh, global oil prices briefly, and that, that that brought Canadian stock market to the record levels in a matter of hours, and it sustained itself for a couple of days. And then you saw it dip, dip back down, and then you've seen another spike based on um, you know, questionable uh, risks. Like, what are what is the risk premium to be paid by this, and and uh, what are, what are the risks of a retaliation on the one hand from Saudis, and then what are the risks of there actually being repair delays? They said they're going to be back up and running at full capacity within a couple of weeks, and already there are signs that uh, that may have been a bit of a pipe dream, and it could be a matter of weeks or even months before the Saudi uh, oil capacities are, are back online. But to return to the, the, the question, um, you know, clearly the, the Houthis have motive to, to, to launch such an attack. I mean, the, the, the Saudi-led coalition has been uh, at a stalemate. They've been losing this war, essentially, against the Houthis on the ground, and they've only been able to resort to blockades, uh, inhumane blockades that are causing, you know, depredation, hunger, and disease, all throughout Yemen on, on levels, making it you know, what they keep referring to with the United Nations officials, et cetera, as the world's worst humanitarian crisis, largely fueled by the continuation of this war on Yemen, uh, led with U.S. and, of course, critical U.K. and other Western states backing uh, by Saudi Arabia. And, you know, it's, it was very interesting is just a few days after the attack and then all these responses came out, the Houthis came out and they said, you know what? We are willing to uh, engage in a ceasefire. Uh, if you, we will stop all of our attacks on Saudi and their coalition, and their proxies, if they in turn also stop their attacks. But of course, the Saudi response to this: just yesterday, we saw another brazen uh, airstrike in the south, where they killed uh, at least a dozen people. Um, and you know, this is a, this is a moment when you'd think that Saudi Arabia would be basically planning an exit strategy from Yemen. I mean. In the, in the in the face of this uh, this strike, but of course, uh, if they if they insist on blaming and exclusively blaming Iran for this attack, then they're going to try and make it not about about Yemen uh, per se, and uh, they'll continue to perpetuate this this conflict as long as they feel is necessary. Uh, who knows at this point what their what their end game is? But we've seen a real 
ratcheting up as a result uh if we turn to that uh, the you know the the US has uh has announced uh, this what are they calling the international maritime security construct so they're going to try and uh, cobble together some sort of coalition to go in and protect help to protect Saudi and and, and UAE as well territory uh with with a with a bit of a coalition of the willing who knows what the extent of that will be the US has already sent uh, maybe symbolic amount of uh, soldiers to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They announced that this week. And all of this just points to, again, a ratcheting up of tensions, uh, increasing the likelihood of possibility of, of war. And again, of course, as, as uh, election season heats up uh, in the U.S., the, uh, and, and I should mention in Canada as well, where, where, uh, we've, where we've had been the, in the grips of scandals, uh, the, the, um, Justin Trudeau's, uh, brown and blackface scandal that emerged last week. Uh, maybe, maybe one reason why Canada has not said a word about the, the attack. In fact, Saudi Arabia denounced Canada among other 40 countries. Um, and Canada, of course, is a, is a notable importer of Saudi oil and will not, uh, be unaffected by this attack either in terms of the imports of Saudi oil or its, or its effects, its ripple effects on the, on the Canadian uh, oil industry. But uh, they, they've been silent so far on the attack, and uh, the Saudis aren't happy about that. But um, the question is, uh, what, what are the next steps? And I think we're going to see in the coming days how this is going to take shape. You know, the last time we spoke, it seemed like the uh, U.S. Congress was moving to withdraw American support of the Saudi uh, war efforts in Yemen. And it also seemed like there may have been some progress towards uh, peace negotiations and a cessation of hostilities in Yemen. Uh, but since then, it doesn't seem like there's been much progress in bringing that brutal war to an end. Uh, do you agree? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it does look bleak in many respects. At the same time, uh, you know, they've got the UN Special Envoy, Martin Griffiths, uh, continues to attempt to facilitate some level of negotiations between all the parties. Um, I've heard rumblings of other negotiations that may be taking place. Russia is attempting to moderate some uh, negotiations. Of course, in the background, you've also got this whole, you know, the block, the ongoing blockade of Qatar by its fellow GCC members. Uh, I've also heard of moves towards the resolution of that. I mean, all these things need to be resolved. Um, Yemeni just get, are getting ca- caught in the crossfire overall. The average Yemeni citizen of, of these, t- these ca- this uh, this regional war that uh, seems to be brewing. Yeah, so I mean, negotiations still look pretty bleak. I mean, it's, uh, until we actually see, because there, there have been so many attempts, there have been ceasefires. There's over you know the port of Hodeida where you know critical it's critical the choke point um, that's been under the sea, uh, seizure basically. For years now, um, you know, we need to see some movement. The, the problem is, you know, you have this reckless crown prince, ultimately, uh, who just, for some reason, uh, seems to believe that this is his war to wage and that, that that's his, his, the destiny to, to prosecute this war to whatever ends and, um, uh, is posing a big, a major barrier to the negotiations. I mean, the many people, I'm sure, want to move forward and put this behind them, but that's impossible until until there's uh, an end to the you know, foreign intervention in the country. So, yeah, to answer your question, it's bleak, but, I mean, there are always, there are always efforts and back, you know, 
backdoor negotiations and whatnot that are underway, but uh, we'll only know when when they actually materialize and something you know legitimately concrete emerges. And uh, you know, going back to the uh, to the drone attack, you made reference to some earlier attacks on ships in the Straits of Hormuz a couple of months ago, and there was also a U.S. drone was shot down at that same time. And I've just sort of been becoming more and more aware of this escalating drone warfare in the region. You know, do you think all of these events are connected? And, you know, what does it really say? I think that the U.S. government's uh, argument is that this is all uh, Iranian, um, you know, offensive uh, attacks. Is is that really what's going on? Or what's your sense of, of what this uh, really tells us about drone warfare in the region? Yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, I mean, who who are the ones who are like the uh, the innovators on the on the drone warfare front, right? The, the U.S., of course, right? They, they're the ones who brought this this type of war, new new quote unquote warfare to the region in Iraq, um, of course, in Afghanistan, um, and so to, to for them to believe that their their enemies, their opponents in the region, aren't going to follow suit uh, and and create their own capabilities, either for defensive or offensive purposes, uh, with these unarmed, or sorry, unmanned, uh, aircraft, they have to be kidding themselves, right? I mean, so like they, they created the conditions for this type of escalation and mutation of drone warfare. And so, uh, they're kind of just, uh, it was kind of baked, baked into the arrival of the, the first U.S. drones, however many years ago. And, um it's it's uh yeah, the inevitable consequence of of a continued US presence you know to to the question of like it, it it is it does strain credulity that with the enormous you know forward operating base that centcom the US centcom has in in Qatar uh in in Bahrain i mean the center for their you know their regional air combat operations is in Aludeid Qatar uh, they've got they've got air bases in Kuwait. They've got them in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, that the U.S. did not detect these attacks, and it's it, it, again a strange credulity how how these attacks were able to uh, be carried out with the precision that they were, with the timing that they were, all undetected. And assuming it was either Yemenis or with or without Iranian assistance or leadership. Uh, it exposed uh, weakness, uh, fundamental weakness, uh, uh, that uh, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, their defenses are obviously uh, weak. No matter how many billions of dollars they're spending on their so-called defense, and the other thing, the other thing to mention here is that you know just the very the symbolism of the attack itself, right, on Aramco, right, the world's largest oil company. They're in the midst of you know rapidly, quite rapidly, in fact trying to prepare their initial public offering of Aramco to, for the first time in the history of the company, going back to when it was owned by Standard Oil in the, in the original days, uh, they're going to be publicly trading at least a, a small percentage of the company in order to raise money for this so-called modernization campaign that uh, Mohammed bin Salman is undertaking under the auspices of Vision 2030. And they, already you're seeing uh, signs that the, this attack has caused Yet another delay to the Aramco public offerings uh, because of the you know just the chaos that's ensued 
Um, and it's, it's very fascinating. It's that this is a, the, the strategic blow um, that this achieved, whoever carried it out, is is nothing short of impressive uh, in terms of its its ability to shake o- o- global markets, to raise a level of risk, uh, the perception of risk, and then to just literally, you know, cripple the Saudi production, but also their plans for how they're moving forward. You know, many people in the region view Saudi Arabia as a uh, not a force for good at all, as a force of destabilization, as a counter-revolutionary force. And I, I can only imagine how uh, people, you know, freedom-loving people in the region are uh, probably actually applauding this, this the, the audacity of this attack uh, for its ability to, to expose Saudi Arabia's weaknesses uh, at this particular time. You know, in thinking about these attacks, particularly in the Straits of Hormuz, it reminded me of a couple of things. One was the Gulf of Tonkin affair uh, that escalated a U.S. involvement in Vietnam as we know it. Uh, but also, you know, hopefully I'm not nerding out too much here, but I think it was Star Trek VI where the uh, you know Starfleet Enterprise, whatever, was negotiating a peace treaty with the Cleons, and there was a conspiracy of uh, both humans and Cleons that did not want a treaty and sabotaged that momentum uh, with with a cloaked missile attack. Maybe that's a long way to pose the question. Uh, what's the possibility that what's going on is not as apparent as it may seem, that there's some non-state actor a la Blackwater or something like that that's manipulating the nation states on the brink of war? Is that a paranoid thought or is that a real possibility? I'd like to think it's a paranoid thought. I mean, I suppose anything's possible. Uh, you know, you've seen, you can call them conspiracy theories, right? Already, you know, inevitably, there's a, I've seen a couple of articles referring to this as a potential, quote-unquote, false flag operation. Of course, like, there, there is a, a possibility of that. Um, you never know uh, in terms of, um, you know, as some have speculated. Well, first they said that these, these appeared to come from Iraq, the strikes in Iraq. was like, no. Uh, they didn't, you know, there were, there was drone sightings in Kuwait as well the same day. Um, some have speculated that, uh, if it came from Iran, somehow it was, um, the Iranian opposition, the MEK, that, uh, the likes of John Bolton, who was, of course, uh, just booted, booted out or quote unquote resigned, uh, from, uh, his position in the Trump cabinet just a couple of days before this attack. But I, again, like, I, I don't, I don't want to, uh, undermine the you know the agency of say the Yemeni rebels uh, or or uh, Iran in this case whoever it was that carried it out the Houthis have proven themselves quite capable of waging a ground war against this heavily armed heavily modernized Western backed Saudi and UAE forces uh, with very little with that with a highly disproportionate degree of you know weaponry and. and and firepower and so forth, and the Houthis are, are essentially winning the, the ground war. So, like to, to to say that okay, well they're winning the ground war, but no, they couldn't possibly be able to carry out this kind of attack. Um, I think is a little bit uh, short-sighted. And so, I just think what what's what's striking is just this like collective like this group thing. Because now you've seen just today uh, the UK joined by uh, France and Germany, and up until yesterday, France was refusing to pin this on Iran, but today all of a sudden does this bold face uh, Macron uh, when he's at the UN 
and they've they've decided that they're going to collectively say that Iran is unequivocally behind these attacks. They're lining up behind a narrative, and it's a very dangerous thing. So we've seen what happens when these types of coalitions are cobbled together on these these rather tenuous narratives, such as in 2002 in the build up to the war in Iraq, um, you know, WMD, uh, you know, and everyone just if everyone just repeats it enough times, then Iran may as well have carried this attack if they're going to end up using it, it to to literally attack attack them militarily. Now, they're already attacking them and trying to cripple them economically. Let's also mention how the, the, the sanctions, the economic sanctions, were ratcheted up yet again this past week in the wake of this attack on, on the Aramco facilities. And we also know what the impact of sanctions are and who is affected by them most profoundly, and that's the Iranian people, so just as it was the, the case in Iraq. Um, a price that was deemed, of course, and her infamous quote, Madeleine Albright said, that was worth it, you know. And so it's worth it right now to be sanctioning Iran and crippling them uh, economically. And um, But we also, the danger is that these types of crippling sanctions are often a, a prelude or a precursor to a literal, you know, military attack. And so this looms in the horizon. And it's, these are, I don't think that uh, the region has been this close to, uh, such a conflict in, in some time. Um, but of course, you know, Saudi Arabia is not going to launch a, it's a unilateral invasion on Iran. They would not do so without probably Israel's backing. They would not do so, of course, without U.S. and U.K. and now indications now that France will be on board. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's a very, it's a real tinderbox um, moment. And we just hope that, uh, that uh, we can see some sort of signs of de-escalation, especially in these next few days coming out of this uh, this UN General Assembly. Well, and, and you touched on a point which I think is the most important question, is where are things headed from here? Uh, immediately after this, uh, I was pretty sure that there was going to be an escalation of towards a war with Iran. Since that, we haven't, we've seen some signs of it, but then as you mentioned, Bolton, who's the most hawkish on, on these issues, in the Trump government is now out. So, you know, what's the likelihood that this is this is part of a, an escalation to war, or is there any other direction that this could reasonably go? Yeah, at this point, it's hard, it's hard to see. Uh, this won't be. I don't think this will be the last kind of strike, you know, surgical or otherwise that we see. What? Because that was another thing. You know, this this this, this narrative, this other sort of counter narrative. This is a game changer, right? Like, well. I would agree with that if it was if it was repeated, if they were able to repeatedly carry out these sorts of attacks, and then in turn, if it could unequivocally be shown that that it was indeed emanating from Iranian territory and that it was actually the Iranian regime and not some other party, a third party, uh, I think you would. I think they would they would be back. They would they will have already taken steps to back themselves in the corner where they feel they have no choice but to militarily strike out. Uh, at Iran, uh, either with, you know, their own surgical strikes. I would imagine it would be similar to what you, uh, what you saw in Syria when on a couple of occasions when they, when they did these, uh, sort of symbolic, uh, strikes following chemical, uh, chemical attacks in, in Syria by the Assad regime. You might see them, you might see them do some sort of surgical attack on whatever facilities they deemed uh, necessary. But uh, that, that, that's that's the road we seem to be going down, you know, unless cooler heads prevail, unless, like, at the heart of this as well is this whole, the whole uh, you know, non-proliferation agreement, how the, the Trump administration unilaterally walked away from it, leaving Iran in the lurch 
uh, Iran feeling very slighted and also feeling the feeling the pinch from devastating sanctions that the that the U.S. has again been ratcheting up on them. And it's also reasonable to understand how, why they would the Iranians would take such a risk if it was indeed them who to do who did this attack. Feeling uh, increasingly isolated, they want to assert that uh, perhaps that they should be taken more seriously. Uh, that uh, that negotiations are the only way to longer lasting peace and that uh, they've shown a willingness to to promote and uh, de-escalate and denuclearize um, but they it can't be a one-sided conversation and so like in many ways the Trump administration itself along with this uh, you know brutal regime in Saudi Arabia are responsible for eliciting some of these sorts of reactions either through you know their prosecution of the war in Yemen uh, the brutal inhumane war on Yemen, or, and also just through, through, through the way that they've treated Iran uh, on the global stage. So these, these are all pointing towards very possible escalation, but there's also potential at all times for, for de-escalation if, uh, if the right conditions are met. Uh, anything else you wanted to add that we didn't touch on about uh, the importance or the implications of these uh, recent events? Uh, not particularly, just, uh, you know, it'd be really interesting to see how, how, uh, if and how they come back online with their oil production, whether, uh, because, you know, the Saudi Arabians have been very guarded with the, the extent of the, the damage. There's suggestions that there may be more, more damage than they, they let on. Uh, and then, uh, how this is going to reverberate around the world. And of course, uh, there's no shortage of oil, right? We're in a period of an oil glut. And in fact, most people, most oil companies would be happy to see a much higher uh, price for a barrel of oil, even if the average person will be stung by it. But um, yeah, I mean, like I said before, it's really interesting to keep an eye on what happens at the UN General Assembly and whether or not uh, they can, some of the parties in this conflict can just be, can just cl- be compelled to climb down the rhetoric and uh, the aggression and hopefully uh, we'll see a de- de-escalation. And at the heart of this, though, we need to see an end uh, to the war in Yemen. Uh, res- resolution of that conflict will, will I think, go a long way to a resolution of the broader, broader types of uh, conflict that we see surfacing in the region. Well, thanks again for joining us, Anthony, and uh, helping us understand these developments. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there'll be more to come. So I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thanks so much. Take care. There's a war going on outside no man is safe from. Could run, but you can't hide forever from these streets that we done took. You walk with your head down, scared to look. You shook, cause ain't no such things as halfway crooks. They never around when the beef cooks in my part of town. It's similar to Vietnam. Now we all